That's the subtitle, uh, is except for me. Um, uh, yeah, the third line just says in small print, seems to be me. Uh, so, um, the, um, uh, you know, Pastor Bill's going to be sharing on Sunday, talking about his new family, and uh, 
And I know that's going to be a, a great, great lesson to take forward for you to tune in to prayer like they need to. I know they need to be able to tune from afar. Um, and, um, and also, um, we did not do testimonies tonight, so um, they, we're going to do testimonies on Sunday. So if you're feeling wacky, um, you know, just, just hold true, I think. Uh, and just uh, just keep it holstered at your hip and, and prepared for next Sunday. And, and, you know, Bill has already said he's had visions of people just, you know, you know, just firing them off into the field. I mean, it's just going to be just going to be a, a veritable banquet of testimonies. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be on Sunday. Um, another note is that next Thursday we're going to begin our series, I think it's going to be five sermons, so five teachings on Thursdays titled Wrestling with Wisdom, um, and so we're going to go through and look at um, five different um, things that that I think are important to us, important to our understanding of who God is, um, important to our understanding of our responsibility in the society or in the culture that we live in, um, and we're going to tackle some really potentially uncomfortable things. So, if you do not want to get dressed, stay home. This is the reality. Now, I didn't mean. I know that's. This is. This is. I mean entirely sincere. If if you really. There are some times that that people just feel like you know I just it's just too much I don't want to get into that I don't want to go there that is no problem if you feel like you you are comfortable um, uh, just give me uh, so this coming Thursday we're gonna um, dive into um, a study on how we read the Bible and um, what what I'm calling the weaponized gospel of the rest and. Um, Essentially, we're going to look at how prevalent it is in our society for people to use the Bible to trump Jesus. And so we're going to tackle that first because we're going to get into, I think, week two. We're going to do a, a water to wine section. Week three is going to be um, hell. Um, and then week four, isn't that lovely? Hell Thursday. Bring your marshmallows. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and then week five is going to be <clears throat> on bad eschatology, the rapture, and the book of Revelation. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to try to do, I'm going to try to keep it to like a 35 to 40 minute sermon. Because we're for the first time ever in the history of the church going to do a Q&A after each message. We're going to open it up for people to ask questions and to have some dialogue about these topics. Um, I might, when I came up with this idea, I very likely, last Sunday's message was supposed to be titled Everybody Must Get Stoned. I must have been whenever I came up with that idea, but we're just going to go with it. Um, and so uh, we're going to do our best, I assure you. I'm not going to have any preemptive. Um, you're probably going to hear several times, I don't know the answer to that, and neither do you. 
because we're going to try to do our absolute best to agree upon what we know to be true. And the basis for it, that's one reason we've been doing this study on society leading up to it is because what we have to understand is that the way in our in our Western culture, a lot of our approaches are more American than they are Westernized than they are Orthodox, and um, so we're going to do our best. It's probably going to be more of a um, of a scholastic type teaching. In fact, just as an example, in, in our study on hell, we're going to look at the various teachings of, uh, that the early church fathers had about hell. I'm not going to tell you which of them I believe. I'm going to tell you which one I don't, but I'm not going to tell you which one of them I believe. It's not that kind of teaching. We're going to be presumptive, and the thing that I want to make really clear is that in all of these studies, we have to understand that these are not things that should separate our faith. Far too long in church, and and I mean the, the, the Christian church at large, we have allowed things that are not critical, not central to Jesus and to what his message was to separate and divide us into categories that we know better than we do. So we're going to start every Thursday morning. We're going to start with reading the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because that's what happens. Jesus is what happens. But as far as doctrinally speaking, that's the the Apostles' Creed is the only thing that Protestants and Catholics, Christians worldwide, all agree upon doctrinally. That's pretty incredible. I mean, that says a lot about what the early church fathers did and the investment in impressing and in hearing the voice of the Father and in, in examining Scripture when they came up with this Nicene Creed, came up with what we know is our creed. I mean, that's whether you know it or not, that's what you believe. And that is the basis of it. So we're going to start every one of them with that because the thing about it is that's what we agree upon. We're going to stay there. Does that make sense? We're not going to get into the nitpicking stuff. I don't care if you've been sprinkled, splashed, hosed down, or dunked. Like that stuff just doesn't matter. So, that has to be the framework. Lastly, we're not going to be live streaming this. What I am going to do is we will be recording those and they'll be available via podcast. If you would like a copy and you're watching this on live stream and realize that you're not able to be here and you want to enjoy those, you feel free to reach out to us through the Facebook page or email or um, you know, call Pastor Bill, direct all phone calls to him. Uh, your complaints as well, by the way. Anything that ticks you off about this, he's going to be fielding all of those. Um, but the, um, the uh, I've still got some payback for a massage that I got in Dallas uh, coming towards Pastor Bill. So I, um, so the the truth of it is, you know, he knows exactly what it is when he, yeah, he knows. Yeah, that's right. So the. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to make them available, we're going to record them, but it's not going to be live streamed at this point. It's going to be more conversational, and I don't want anybody 
to just happen across some of the stuff on Facebook and you were not made of contact to what we're talking about, right? That's because the last thing I need is because I'm saying something, they're going to presume that that's what I believe or you believe, and it may not and the questions are not going to be all that well. They're going to be looking at things historically and doctrinally and saying this is how we got from where we were where we started to here. Sound good? Okay. All right, well, this evening, um, we're going to be looking at um, our, as I said, our last teaching. This is entitled, You Say You Want a Revolution. And I, I you know, I was interested because um, if you remember, we started this, uh, this um, series out with There Must Be Some Way Out of Here, said the joker to the thief. And then last week, which we will hear later, um, everybody must get stoned. We started with what happened at the day of Pentecost and the formation of the church. Then we talked about what we're going to be talking about um, is the stoning of Stephen and the role of persecution within the the early church. And then finally, what we look look at tonight is going to be a little bit out of order. That's not going to affect the flow at all. Um, And what we really, I felt like, needed to look at is... Jesus, I hope we understand, Jesus came to end. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. I think if Jesus, I think Jesus would be maybe not embarrassed, but but certainly not, Jesus would not be part of the religion that has happened in his name. Jesus did not come to start a religion. Jesus came to institute an alternate society, a heaven on earth reality, that culture that people live. And it is literally an alternate society. It just is. And you find that all through the Gospels, you find that through the book of Acts, clearly. And there is such a foundation in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Because here's the thing, um, I, I believe in what it means to be a Christian. In fact, the thing that I think is so fascinating about it is, it's one of the few times that people have actually taken something that was an act and said, yeah, sounds good. Because in Antioch, they were called Christians by their enemies. Their enemies saw them and said, you're obsessed with this guy Jesus, aren't you? What's your deal? You're obsessed with this guy Jesus. You keep talking about that he changed everything. Everybody changed after him. What's the deal? You're just like little Jesuses, aren't you? You're just like little Christs. Pretty rare that your opposition names you, and you embrace it. But that's what happened, because they saw that there was something so dramatically different about who those people were. They were selling everything that they had. Now, here's the frustration I have, and I haven't even got on this yet. Here's the frustration I have. I need to be entirely clear when I say this. There is, this is This is not political. The 
challenge that I have then is, is I get really frustrated because as soon as I start telling people what the Bible said, they start calling me a liberal. It's just the truth. You know who else they called a liberal? Billy Graham. Billy Graham, if you actually go back and do your research, in the 70s was absolutely attacked by the evangelical Republican wing of the political Christian movement, and there is that. And attacked him for being a liberal. Why? Because he shared a stage with Catholics. Because he had a time where he would exchange with presidents who did questionable things. Oh, by the way, even Democrats. Flames are licking at his heels that day, aren't they? And so do you realize that throughout time, there have always been things where people said, man, look at this, but it's it drives me crazy that when I say things like the gospel is, is, is a society that is, I don't think it's possible for you to believe in violence as a means to getting things done and believe what Jesus said. It's not possible. It's just not. And, and there are so many things. I don't believe that, that we can be a people that, that just fall suit to the society we live in, the society that doesn't care for the poor, the society that doesn't care for the hurting, the society that doesn't care, the society that is focused on greed and on power. How do I get what I want? How do I get what I need? I'm going somewhere. And they function on revenge and on payback and on uh, uh, retribution of some kind. And that kind of thing is anti-Jesus. I talked with somebody the other day that was actually celebrating the fact that, that um, Palestinian Muslims are being executed. And they were excited about it. You want to know why? Because they said it just brings us one step closer to rapture. what's the problem when religion becomes civil? Not civil in civilized. It becomes a civil religion where it's nationalized in nature. We have to understand we're living an alternate society and it has to be the model of Jesus. And Jesus regularly when asked, are you here to set up an earthly kingdom? He said, no. I'm not here. Jesus could care less about his reputation that would grow so that he could really make an impression on Rome. Jesus was not interested in that kind of thing. And yet for us, it's a daily part of our life. Because as soon as you don't believe whatever or do believe whatever, you're immediately lumped in as, oh, you're one of those. And you know what I want to be? Little Jesuses. That's the society. 
so as we look at this from the book of Acts in this third segment, this is a radical change because literally you do realize this lifestyle that we've been discussing in this society is what turned the world upside down for Christ. That's what was said in the book of Acts. They turned the world upside down. What did they turn the world upside down with doing? Selling everything they had and giving it to the poor. Spending, you know, ridiculous amounts of time in prayer and in scripture. Loving not only your neighbors, but your enemies. Forgiving radically. Inviting people who were in that before shouldn't have been in. This is a radical gospel. And how strange how in the world we have unradicalized this gospel if you don't know. That I am committed to trying the tolerance of whatever has got me in trouble. Because that is what we need right now. We are here to build a kingdom that a king people, but I'm telling you, pick up a Christian magazine, listen to a Christian preacher, and you don't have to spend 10 minutes, but what you're doing on Valerie's phone is the Cyrus Prophecy Report, and that is not true. It's not true. It's just not true. I don't need a White House Messiah. start doing that, guess what's going to happen in four or eight years or 16 or 25 years? Maybe there's a weird one in there somewhere. If we act, if we say things like God put him there and he's God's man, God elected him, his job's chosen, what are we going to say when somebody can lead a crazy party like that? That means, so for the last eight years before Donald Trump, has God made a mistake? Is God oversleep on ballot day? telling you, we better be careful. You need to, you need to be involved politically. We need to be involved in, in social justice issues. But that's not this. I just want to be emphatically clear. Emphatically clear. As somebody who votes, and as somebody, by the way, here at least again, as somebody who's voted Republican frequently. Frequently. So before everybody calls me some free-hugging, hippie, liberal, progressive, get go over to California and get out of here, liberal. Now let me remind you, live stream land, I live in Indiana. So before you hashtag liberal me, just know the only thing I want to be liberal with is this great new city. All right, Acts chapter 8. That was a long introduction, Lily. You're going to have to stop me. I'm going to throw something and I'm going to hit the rabbit trail. Then began Philip. 
with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said to him, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip a great story. It's one of my favorite stories. In fact, there's so many different things we could go. We could go down the route of, of this exchange. We could go down the route of we were talking a little bit about me, Philip, and the eunuch. Or we could go down this is one of the few times in the Bible we find somebody translated. Which, by the way, that's still, I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I think I would sign up. I mean, I think I would forego my TSA pre-approval uh, if I could go translated pre-approval. I don't know. I'm assuming there's not a line. I don't know. But that kind of thing is so unique and sounds really fictive. So we've been discussing this revolutionary society kind of the early New Testament writers known as the early church. The alternate society that the Bible says turned the world upside down. We're learning about revolution. We studied, if you remember, on the first of these, we talked about the revolution of the Jesus movement. The Jesus freaks of the 60s and 70s. And how, in my opinion, I think our Christian movement has disparaged something that was very, very, very spiritual. And we've called, oh, they're just a bunch of all love, 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 love. Just loosey-goosey with his love. Well, you know what? If there's something I, I'm going to be loosey-goosey with, I think he would prefer that over judgment. Because one of them, he says he is love. So if I'm going to be loosey-goosey with something, I'll just take that. And so this revolution we've been learning about, it revolution means a dramatic shift or change. But we have to see the paradigm that existed prior to this moment to understand why this specific moment was a shift. This was, this moment with Philip and the eunuch was revolutionary. It was a game changer. It broke all of the rules. It was a paradigm shift. To do this, to understand the context of why this is so important, we have to back up way up. We have to go back a thousand years to actually look at the Torah, the first five books of the law in the Old Testament, as ancient Israel was being formed into a people set apart who would worship Yahweh alone, they had to wrestle with their identity and their boundaries. You see, one of the first things that happened when God decided to choose Israel as his people is they had to determine who was in, who was out, and what was the criteria for that. We still do this today. Who's in? Some people say, Jesus' name only. Some people say, Trinity only. Some people say, if you aren't this, if you're the other, then you're out. Some people say, you have to be baptized in Jesus' name. I asked the new pastor, but when he baptized people, he baptized them in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He tried to stick it all in there just in case you cover all the bases in case they got confused. Why? 
because this is such an issue in our culture that people will question their salvation if what was said over them is they get dunked in the horse trough or drown. So we have all of these thoughts. I grew up in a uh, in a charismatic, full gospel, Pentecostal, Assembly of God. We had it, we believed it, we practiced it. God said it, I believe it, and that settled it. Right? But guess what the problem with that is? There's a lot of people who are out there. Baptist? Well, maybe that one saved, always saved some, some of those guys, so they're out. Protestant? Well, you know, um, those guys, you know, they're, they're, it's pretty wild. And you've got, then you've got these Lutherans over here, and you've got the Orthodox over here. And then I've heard that they've been running from gays in, so they're definitely not saved. Then you've got Catholics. They've got an issue where they're all obsessed with Mary, so they're definitely not saved. Right? Before we know it, our camp gets so small. This is exactly what the children of Israel had as well. What does it mean to be the congregation of Israel? Or specifically, the worshiping congregation of Israel. That was what God, through Moses, the lawgiver, had to rectify and define. What does it mean to be part of worshiping congregation? Because we do this too. Essentially, what this means is there are some people in the worshiping congregation who say, well, like, you're kind of in, but not as entertaining. Like, you're probably not going to burn, like, in the real hot parts of hell, but you'll be, like, on the outer courts of hell. It's just going to be stuffy, maybe humid. You know? Then there's, then there's people that they feel like, and, and believe me, we do this because we think, like, we got it all right, so that means I'm going to have the biggest mansion. I'm going to have, like, this guy over here, he, wasn't, he didn't pray in tongues. I don't even know how he asked the Holy Spirit. He didn't have no evidence. You've got to have evidence. That guy hasn't shamanomed in six weeks. I've been shamanomed in 18 years. Maybe he's not out, out, but he's not in like I'm in. I've got to have the spirit. That guy doesn't have the spirit. He doesn't have the spirit. But at least he's getting beaten with Jesus Jesus' So who is permitted to worship in the tabernacle and later the temple? In the Torah, we find an exact definition of the group excluded and included from this community. So here's the great thing, guys. I'm really excited to tell you the Bible tells us exactly who's in and exactly who's out. And they live by this. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 3. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, yikes, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, it doesn't say if it's voluntary or involuntary cutting or crushing. I don't know if something just falls on the poor guy and then he's out. I don't understand. It sounds incredibly painful. If anybody, in my opinion, deserves to be in heaven, it's a guy who got crushed and emasculated. I'm just saying. Boulder falls on the poor man, and now he's, you know, I'm just saying. That guy, I mean, he can have my mansion. I just feel bad for him. But that's what it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage 
were the descendants of Abraham descended to live? Not even the descendants of Nathan. Note, and the Nites were Moabites, were the descendants, not even the descendants. So let's run down this list really quickly. No one who has been emasculated. So that would include eunuchs. That would include um, somebody who voluntarily or involuntarily has lost their ability to produce children, to produce babies. what the good Lord carried all the way to the cross. Um, There is no doubt that other terminology you might use. As an example, um, yours might say bastards. Yours might say something like um, these illegitimate sons. I just don't like either one of those terms because no child has ever been illegitimate. Every child is usually the sixth one. saw the rabbit trail coming, and he just cut me off. He, he gave me, yep, thank you. So, no one born of illicit unions. For ten generations, so let me be entirely clear, you have a baby, you know, I don't know, maybe, who knows what's happening, you're out at, at the, the local Israeli club, it's a country club, of course, uh, so they're playing good old country western, Toby Keith comes on, I ain't talking about forever, baby. I'm just talking about tonight, fires up. And next thing you know, an illicit union occurs. And here's the kicker. It's not those parents that are out. It's the child and ten generations after it. Ten. started, you know, taking over their land and killing all of them. Um, And so they were inhospitable, and so they didn't offer Israel a Gatorade whenever they were, like, you know, marching around their walls and, you know, cutting off all the heads. Um, And so they're out. And the Edomites and the Egyptians onto the third generation. Now, what we have to remember is they understood that inside of the promised land or inside of this place that they now inhabited, there were other nations that were going to move in and live and dwell among them in their land. So they would actually have to say, okay, if I marry somebody who is a Edomite or a Moabite or an Egyptian, etc., etc., you, I, I, my kid isn't in, his kid isn't in, his kid's kid isn't in, but the next one can be. this works. And before we think that like we're, you know, so evolved, did you know something we looked at tongues and interpretation? It's not hard to interpret. Yeah, two plus four. Wait, I, two, all right, hang on, hang on. I think I hear a third creeping up in the back. We think that that's how this works. So when we look at this, this is given by Moses at Mount Sinai, written as long to the Torah. However, ideas change over time. Ideas change over time. The Old 
Testament documents these things. They believe these laws were originally given to Moses around 1200 B.C. Then around 1000 B.C., David has the dream to build a temple. Solomon, his son, builds this temple, which stands for around 400 years, until it is destroyed by the authors of Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. Most of the Jewish people at this time are carried away in deportation into Babylon to live in exile. And while they're there, a man named Isaiah begins writing a prophetic and poetic prayer. There isn't a temple, but Isaiah holds to the hope that there will be one again. That the children of Israel will return and rebuild the temple. And as he envisions this return, he also envisions it with the reconstruction of the temple. And he starts to envision some changes. Now, before I go any further, and, and without preaching in the next you know, half hour, next Thursday, how many times have you heard somebody say something like, the Bible says it, I believe it, I accept it? That, that fully happened when Jesus showed up on the scene. Somehow Isaiah had a, an advance. That's what I guess maybe that's the prophetic nature of who Isaiah was. He was seeing into something that was better. That's what Isaiah was doing. So he envisions them and begins to write about these prophetic words. Not only the temple as a new temple, but a new Israel, a new worshiping community and congregation. Isaiah 56, 1 through 7. This is too good to skip tonight. This is what the Lord says. Oh, now I'm really going to have to come in for more than I do. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating and keeps their hands pure and evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain I am a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And to foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister among them, to love the name of the Lord and to be a servant who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burning offerings and sacrifices will be accepted for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That sound familiar? Who's heard of that? So here's Isaiah, who's very familiar with Deuteronomy 28, very familiar with it, who says, yeah, I know, and I understand that that was important at that time, but there needs to be some changes. We'll talk a little bit next Thursday about how that might be. Uh, <clears throat> it is at this point in our study that we need to do something often neglected when reading these scriptures. 
we defined ourselves within our story. You see, in many ways, we were taught to read the Bible in a way that best served to support us. So in cases where we feel oppressed, we identify with rejected and the captive and the oppressed. And in other cases, we find ourselves as the conqueror and strong victor. Let me ask you a question. In the story of the prodigal son, is the Christian church the elder brother or the prodigal? We have to know. Here's the kicker to that story. The father felt the same way about the elder brother as he did the prodigal that came home. So it's not like that all of a sudden you cut yourself off from the wind and the road promised. But isn't it interesting how we so often like, and I, I have heard and 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 heard from certain camps in evangelicalism and in the media who are saying the number one problem in our culture today is victim mentality. You know who I think encapsulates the victim mentality? Christians encapsulate the victim mentality. When we throw a fit because Starbucks changes their cup, we have gone too far. People last year were protesting Starbucks changed it from merely Christmas to having holidays. People lost their minds. Unless my espresso's got a picture of a baby Jesus on it, I ain't drinking. And and that doesn't, not that I don't want it to have a picture of the baby Jesus on it, we're saying Merry Christmas, but the reality of it is, as soon as we start to do that, we wear that as a badge of honor. And we say, you know what, we're oppressed, and there's, there's all these other religions moving in on our turf. Do you realize that Christian, there is no real holiness, I've done hours of research, that can support the fact that Christianity is either persecuted or on the decline in this country. Zero. The only thing that you'll find is the population of the country is growing and becoming more diverse. You have people moving in with other cultures and religions. That doesn't mean that Christianity is getting smaller. That just means it's probably getting bigger. It's just that simple. But as soon as somebody else gets a little bit of rice, then we say, well, I'm oppressed, and I'm, I'm this, and I'm that. So we then read that into the scripture, and we read things like, I'm, I'm the one who's the captive. I'm the one that's oppressed. But then as soon as we want to ride in on a white horse with Jesus, we're the conqueror and the victor. And the problem with how we read our Bible is we read ourselves into the character that best suits us to come out as the hero. And we've done this our entire lives without even realizing it. So, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that the idea of how we need to see this and how we need to see these stories is deeply important to how we understand how this is supposed to work. We all want to reap promises and blessings that come from standing firm and not rebelling from our Father. However, there 
time where, by and large, the Christian church has been the villain and not the hero. There are times, by and large, so in the story of the Pharisees who were trying to quote scripture at Jesus so they could stone the adulteress and the adulteress, who are we?
obviously was trying to survive and had married people who were not Israelites. So now when everybody comes back home, the great return, Nehemiah and Isaiah take this a step further. And what they actually say is, any of you who were left behind during the exile and remain here, you men of Israel, you have to divorce your Samaritan wives and send them and their children away. Thus says the Lord. It's in the Bible. Now, sidebar here, I know you can't stop me from getting there. Sidebar here is, any hardline divorced folks would say that's an interesting study. Because any hardline divorced folks would say, well, Jesus says the only acceptable reason for divorce is adultery. Well, that's fine. But then you have to throw out the stuff in the Old Testament that the Old Testament has said about divorce. However, why is it that then when we have a problem with somebody, we say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we use the Old Testament and we throw out what Jesus has had to say about divorce? You see where the problem goes? See, the problem becomes, if we do want to do this, if we want to choose and say, I'm going to pick divorce from the Old Testament, and I'm going to put all the Jesus, or I'm going to take this from the Old Testament, vengeance from the Old Testament, but I'm going to take the New Testament, Jesus version of divorce. It's only for adultery. Somebody's fooling around, they've got to go. However, I'm going to take this other stuff from the Old Testament, and I'm going to say that, that this stuff is how God does things because he's all about smashing my enemies. That's how God is going to bring me to heaven. He's going to vindicate me, and he's going to make them bow at my feet. I love all that stuff about, you know, where we're, we're just making sure that I'm, it's known that I'm a person of God. And that's how God's going to bring the kingdom, in some dirty, hairy version of all my enemies getting their way with me. That is what's happened in the church. That's how we can put on the new through counseling and nudging, starving to death, being killed, and again, any hope that we have bowing here and smashing our enemies. But I guarantee you, if I were to say, we face Israel. But you realize how much that we have in common with that same thing is in Israel. So King Herod the Great comes along shortly before the birth of Jesus and builds onto and expands this temple that is that, that was rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's incredible, and it becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People come from far and wide to see this big, beautiful temple, but they decided to build a wall as well. When all else fails, build a wall. They build a new wall around the part where the Jews were permitted to stay, only. So they expand the temple so that more people can come, but then they build a wall. And they stay hardline in their stance about who can go in. Keeping in mind, at that time, the temple represented relationship with God. If you couldn't 
first thing coming, you didn't have a relationship with him. So think about what that prophetic believes right now. We may not believe he's coming personally, but we've got some pretty hard-line assumptions about who gets to have a relationship with God forever. Who really loves God and who doesn't. So they build this wall. And if you wanted to come worship, you could come in as a Gentile tourist. And there was a specific spot for you. And you could, you know, come in, kind of set things up, maybe take a selfie or something like that. But you were just a tourist. You weren't allowed in the worship room part of the temple. You weren't allowed to go into really where you could engage in relationship with God. And you couldn't participate in worship. And in case anyone didn't understand these boundaries, every few feet, they demanded, the Jews demanded that it be inscribed upon the wall this. No foreigner is to go beyond this barrier of the temple. Whoever is caught doing so will have his thoughts put to ringing until his death is worked. So now we go back to Philip. Philip is one of the seven who's interested in the new building started. Philip is one of seven deacons of the early church in the book of Acts. He served in, in, in just as you study, in your own study time, you'll find that there were two Philips in the early church. You'll find Philip the disciple, Philip Thomas, and Philip Jesus. This was Philip the deacon. He served alongside Stephen, who we'll talk about later this next week, worked in the church's social justice operations in Jerusalem. After the stoning of Stephen, it sparked a great persecution against the church. This caused the disciples to flee Jerusalem, and Philip goes to Samaria and starts preaching to them. This already is radical. Philip starts preaching to Samaritans. By all standards, except for Jesus, you don't find anybody that wants anything to do with Samaritans. In fact, these are the same people that when Ezra and Nehemiah reestablished Israel, they said, if you've married one of these Samaritan boobies, you got to kick her out. And they're killed, too. So Philip goes to the Samaritans and begins to preach to them in order to radical immersion. They believe and commit their lives to Jesus. And after his time in Samaria, he's on the road to Gaza, and he sees this area with an Ethiopian eunuch leading him. The Ethiopian eunuch, we find in the story, we don't know much about him. In church tradition, we're told, uh, well, we're, we're told a, a few different things. Um, uh, Arrhenius, who actually finds, says um, that his name was Simeon Bacchus. Irenaeus was the disciple, if you have studied your church history, he was the disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was the disciple uh, or the Padawan, if you will, of Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle had one of the seven Ethiopians eunuchs. So Irenaeus says this thing to Simeon Bacchus, but we really don't know. The Ethiopian, we do know, was the secretary of the treasury of the Nubian kingdom of Ethiopia. Now, I really had hoped we would have time to get into this, and we're not. We're not. But in case anybody's curious, the Nubian kingdom, one of the things that's most unique about him is it was a feminine-ruled kingdom.
fact, even today, if, if you're praising someone and you're saying she's a, a powerful woman and you're saying, well, isn't she a movie queen? The reason is, is that was the society at that time. And they, as was the case oftentimes, when there was a woman in power, they would surround themselves with eunuchs. And we were trained to This man was the secretary of the treasury for this kingdom in Ethiopia. He was very, uh, undoubtedly a very important and wealthy man. And he makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The scripture says he actually came with his people, worshiped in the temple. And he traveled over a thousand miles to get there and do it. But he finds once he's arrived that, sorry, eunuch Ethiopian from the kingdom or cut. But either way, he's out. And he's from a foreign land. Foreigners. You gotta watch those foreigners. They come invading and taking stuff over. Next thing you know, everything's just gonna be a mess. Remember him telling the news team that he was from Ethiopia as well. So, what you find is, he's excluded. He's actually excluded in three of the four categories. So he's not, I mean, three strikes and he's really out, I think, by that point. So he decides that while he's there, he purchases a copy of the story of Isaiah. The thing you have to understand, I actually haven't decided my research behind this, that this would have been extravagantly expensive. At that time, you would have to pay a scribe by hand to write and scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. And that's a big expense. This would have been extravagantly expensive. Some even said comparable to a fine wine glass. Extravagantly expensive. And yet, for him, he, he's a wealthy man. He's the secretary of the treasury for the Nubian kingdom of Ethiopia. He's something. So he buys it. And he's on his, on his way back home and gets out the scroll and begins to read it. In his chariot. Now, the thing you have to remember is at that time... The way we read now in a reading context, and just one of the words in your mind as you look at the page, that actually didn't start happening until some say around 300, 250 to 300 years ago. When people would read, they would read out loud. In fact, if you said to somebody, you know, uh, you're going to go read, they never could imagine the thought that you wouldn't hear what they were saying. Kind of interesting. Now, we don't have time for this. Teaches that in life at any rate, but the the interesting thing about that thought is, think about what that means for how important it is for us to hear the word of God. And and the scriptures uh, encompassed within the word a little bit. Think about how just three hundred years ago we started reading these these poems, and I wonder if that had never happened, what would be different. Because I do believe there is an importance to your ears hearing what God is saying. In fact, I've instructed several people, um, you know, when you were going through your prophetic words, read them. But some of them you need to read out loud. Because your ears and your head need to hear it. 
people with principles something different. This is also one of the concerns I had about people that only say, um, I believe in Christ. I believe in Christ and I'm good. But one of the concerns I have with that is there's a reason Paul cut off circumcision and any unclean. Part of the reason is you need that thing where your ears hear and your head hears and it settles into your heart what God wants and what does God want. You could probably at this time, I could pray and fear could run all of that out of your heart. And your head would still be totally right and settled. So he's reading aloud and you read this passage. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. In his humility, he was deprived of justice. And as he reads this out loud, Caleb walking down the road to Gilboa, as he had been over in Samaria and now headed, he hears this. And he says to the Ethiopian eunuch, you look confused. Do you know what you're reading? Ethiopian responds and says, how can I understand unless somebody helps me? Philip could explain exactly who he's reading about, that it's Jesus, shares the gospel with Jesus, shares the kingdom with him, and the eunuch believes. In fact, his response when Philip says to him, if you choose to commit your life to him and are baptized, and you will then belong to this new society, the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, the first thing I think is interesting about this is Philip, at this moment, we don't, I, I don't, you don't see in here that Philip ever says, would you rob for me? He doesn't get out his pocket Roman's robe and read through. from Nubia and a sinner and a dirty, rotten <laughs> and I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of glory even though I have no idea what the glory of God is and I want you to come into my heart even though that's nowhere in prevents me from being baptized. And we think that that's, that's kind of like a, um, you know, just, I don't know, what, why, why can't I get baptized? This man has just traveled a thousand miles to Canaan and is told he couldn't get there. There's a God in the midst of his
what possessed you to even write it? Like, what inspired you? Like, what are all the journeys that you've had? participation in God's chosen people be defined by ethnicity, circumcision, or Torah observance. But it is all now identified by faith, hope, and love, none of which originate with us and all of which we are born into. None of which originates with us. You're not, there is no one born that Faith, hope, and love is an easier thing for the major spirit. It's just given to him with some type of birth. You're born into this. We commit our lives to this. When we privatize and individualize salvation, we inevitably misunderstand that longing. Salvation itself is the longing. Do you realize that all throughout the Bible, Jesus is mentioned who wrote salvation twice? Regularly mentions salvation. Jesus mentions the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all the time. In fact, that's almost all he talks about. Literally, it just is everywhere. Paul almost never mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. My point is this. Dallas Willard says in his great book, The Divine Conspiracy, that those words are synonymous. Salvation and the gospel of the kingdom are synonymous. The kingdom of God and salvation are synonymous. Here's the challenge we have, though. It's synonymous, but they're synonymous the right way. They're synonymous because anyone who comes into salvation is supposed to be stepping into this kingdom of God that then they have the ability to welcome here on earth. What we have said, though, is, is you get saved and you then get as a blessing the kingdom of God. It's a reward. Because we've associated the kingdom of God to an afterlife reality that comes as a promise of a reward because you were saved. Yes. So, what Paul and Jesus clearly agree upon is it is belonging. That's what the word salvation actually means in its intent. It means to belong in something. So isn't it so interesting that so much of our salvation theology did not incorporate belonging, but privatization? Salvation was this person's in because they do this, or this person's out because they do this. And in fact, he would even take it further. You have some people that won't even allow some people to go to the church. I mean, But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we have to understand. We do 
believe that anybody can accept Jesus. But as soon as we start using the, the Bible as a sword to attack and to say, you're not living like this. You're not doing this. You don't believe like this. So all of this good stuff that I get, you don't get. His grace is sufficient for me because I believe what the Bible believes. His grace is not sufficient for you because you don't get grace because you don't believe like I believe. You're still going there and doing that confession booze thing. You're sure to burn up. You know, I think sometimes probably that somebody that was did some research and followed it and things like this person, I, I really like their testimony who was in the uh, Marine Corps and in Palestine. And she said, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is that by and large the Muslim people are far and away more welcoming and gracious and kind than we have to do or we are blessed by the Muslims. Far and away. And she said that that makes such a difference. And and so isn't it an interesting thing though because what I was always taught growing up was Salvation is belonging. So the cry is be saved, be liberated from this culture of exclusivity, of greed, and anger, and bitterness, and come into belonging. All who are thirsty, come. And all who are hungry, come. Eat and drink. Find a place at this table. This was the basic point that the early church was trying to figure out. Do you realize that they had to then figure out again who's in and who's out? They had to do the same thing that Israel had to do. In the early church, they had to figure out, and, and Paul comes along, thank God for Paul, and gives doctrine and theology to this. Because Peter, if you remember right, he wasn't game for it. They were, In fact, Paul is correcting some of the people in the church who are still saying that if you're not circumcised, you're out. And so Paul comes along and gives theology to this and doctrine to this. But Paul is an interesting guy because the Jews, because Paul was a, a Roman citizen, but was a Jew. So the Jewish people thought Paul was casting the net far too wide. The Romans are ticked off because he's saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So he was having enemies on every side. But what he was saying is this, this thing that is being experimented with is radical inclusivity. I want to say that again. The gospel of Jesus is radical inclusivity. It is inclusion gone wild. That's what this is. So, I do not think that for a moment it makes any sense for us to feel like that the gospel of Jesus and my holiness means I only engage with people who can accept me. Because I guarantee you, you fill a room with people who are biblicists, who are biblical literate, literate, meaning they believe the Bible word for word, everything in the Bible is exactly what it is, and none of them are going to agree on what the Bible means. 
so you, you, the, the, the idea that we've got to have all of these lines, I'm just telling you, God is going to do something. And, and when we th- if there's any group of people in the Bible that I would think that God would be done with, would have written off, and would say, I have no interest in, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down fire from heaven and consumed them. And in two different occasions, in Isaiah, uh, another occasion, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel, God says he's going to restore Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because God's in the restoration business. God is always about inclusivity. Always. So why aren't we? So why is it whenever Katrina hits New Orleans, all the pastors are on TV talking about the judgment of God, just like following Sodom and Gomorrah. Many will forget right because not God's going to care. Why? Why do we do this? And some of those things, we may not be that extreme, but some of these things just just hit us. Some of these things are deeper within us that we think, well, this group, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with those people. Let me tell you, I, I'm really, really grateful that Philip didn't stop to the eunuch and say, are you a Christian? Before he got scared.
and all of that, but we think we don't really think it was a big deal. What's with the lighting? Four people, eight people. Educated people. Uneducated people. Young pastors, maybe. We have experience. I know people that I love and who I'm serving with, and they firmly believe that if we vote these, we cannot win the election. It is impossible for you to win by voting down the agenda of people. You have got to understand that what we're living is it is the fact that we get to walk up here to a kingdom that is basically at the end of the line. But I don't want to put you at the line of the end. It's an endless thread that anybody could come to. But even in that communion, what would you find? The mark. You're not saved? So I would invite all of us to really think hard about the deal of the lighting and think about that. Who is it? What group? Are there, is there any theme or theme that, that are not allowed to have passion? But God bless Isaiah. God bless Philip for saying that there is a better way. It's the way of Jesus. You get to join me next week. Let's ask for the kingdom of God. So. Father, we love you. We thank you so much. And we declare over ourselves and our hearts and our, our communities and our homes and our families that you're bigger than the odds. You're bigger than the, the differences of opinions. You're bigger than the, the doctrinal differences. And you're bigger than the religious differences. And you're bigger than the Because there is not a person who is not meant to be guided by your spirit. So, Father, we ask you now that, that you would begin to radically touch people by your grace. Help us to be ministers of God. We're believing for people to know you who have never known you before. We're believing for people who need to know you better than they've ever known you. And we ask you, Father, that we would be the instruments of that. And so, Father, we ask you for every church in this community. Father, we bless our Catholic brothers and sisters in this community and the churches that represent. We bless, Father, the, the, the Lutheran churches, the Nazarene churches, the Baptist churches, the Pentecostal churches. Father, we bless the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we ask you, Father, to invade those houses of worship with your presence because that's what we need. Father, help your kingdom. We believe your kingdom is going to come and help us to stand on behalf of that and help us to stand firm saying there is a better way. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.